This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. When Kilauea Volcano erupts in May 2018, back to the land farmers June and Lonnie must decide whether to evacuate or stay and protect their big island homestead against threats like feral pigs and potential looters or flee the dangers they cannot control. In the process, they learn where the fault lines are in their own relationship and whether they can survive a disaster that may be immediate and cataclysmic. Sarah Blanchard is an award-winning writer based in North Carolina's Blue Ridge Mountains. After living most of her life in New England, she moved in 2003 to Hilo, Hawaii, where she taught at the University of Hawaii and later worked in administration at Gemini Observatory. This is a work of fiction. Rift Zone Written by Sarah Blanchard. Read by Rebecca Nemethy. It's two in the morning, and the feral pigs are roaming again in the Puna Forest Reserve. Half a dozen forage now outside the bedroom window, snorting and grumbling, their heavy bodies jostling against the house and occasionally clattering over the floorboards of the lanai. The pigs are searching, June knows for papayas or guavas or avocados, or chicken feed, or chicken, anything edible that's dropped outside the electric fence, the solar-powered perimeter that surrounds their gardens and henhouse with tensioned wires set at pig-snout height. She lies on the mattress in the smoky orange gloom and thinks she should be grateful that it's the pigs that woke her, not the volcano. When the earthquakes and lava explosions are thundering, She can't hear the wild pigs. Lonnie snores softly beside her. How can he possibly sleep? She calls his name softly, then louder with urgency. Lonnie, Lonnie, it's the pigs. You said to wake you if I hear the pigs, Lonnie. Wake up, pigs. She prods his shoulder. He grumbles and rolls away. She shakes him harder and he snorts, then yawns, scratches the pale stubble on his chin and sits up. Eighteen years together, and she's never figured out how he can sleep so deeply. He doesn't lose sleep over the everyday things that leave her lying wide-eyed and worried. Too much rain, too little rain, never enough money, a broken-down truck, failed crops. How he can sleep, with hot lava on the roads and wild pigs marauding in the yard, 
She has no idea. Maybe it's the lack of kids. If they'd had children, it might be different. Maybe then he would have learned to wake up quickly. Or maybe not. Lonnie yawns and stretches his lanky body. He pivots off the mattress and fumbles for jeans and sneakers. Rustling his tangled lion's mane into a rough twist, he stuffs it under a grubby ball cap. He folds aside the blue tarp draped over the bedroom window and, by the flood of red-orange light from the volcanic fire in the northeast, locates his shotgun, propped in the corner of the kitchen alcove. June sits in half-lotus on the edge of the mattress and narrows her eyes against the volcanic glow. She finger-combs her short, dirty hair off her forehead and watches him load the gun, sliding a single shell into the chamber, intent on this small task. He doesn't notice her observing him. He loves this frontier existence. He loves the absurdity, the chaos, skating on the edge of disaster. They live on an erupting volcano, and Lonnie's number one self-appointed task is to defend the homestead from wild pigs. There's nothing left to defend. Go, she urges him silently. Let's just get away. We should be packing up, not shooting at hungry, displaced animals. Lonnie rests the gun barrel on the sill of the open window and swivels it slowly from side to side, sighting down its length and calculating where to spend his precious shotgun shell so it will have the most impact. Possibly kill one pig and send the rest back under the dead banana trees. June knows no one will notice the shot. No other people are living close enough now to care. A blast from a shotgun, the jet engine roar from the lava flow, the crack of someone's propane tank exploding. Who can tell the difference anyway? Only old Adam Tanaka lives nearby, and he's nearly deaf. But no one's seen him for a few days, so he's probably evacuated too, gone to live with family. Before Lonnie can pull the trigger, the pigs throw up their heads, perhaps catching a scent of something more enticing. They blunder away, going deeper into the Ohia forest. Back toward Adam's place. June hates and fears the wild pigs. They're aggressive, unafraid of humans. Even in good times, the pigs destroy crops, dig up the land, and eat almost anything, including the carcasses of other animals. But she also hates seeing anything killed. She feels a quick flicker of sympathy, and understanding of their desperation. They, too, are just trying to survive in this blasted land. Lonnie exhales and straightens up, slips the safety on, and props the shotgun back in its corner. They gone now, but maybe soon they be back. Lonnie's voice often slips these days into the pigeon patterns of his youth. You sleep. I can watch. Maybe I get him by and by. Maybe not. He shrugs and smiles. June thinks of the local phrase that first perplexed and then annoyed her when she'd arrived on the big island nearly two decades earlier. If can, can. If no can, no can. She now knows that it's just another version of que sera, sera. What will be, will be. Or, hey, this ain't up to me which was another of Lonnie's annoying sayings. Gonna get some water. Maybe you want some? Yes, 
Mahalo. She stretches out on their mattress again and knows she won't sleep. The pigs are gone, but now she can hear the thrum of a helicopter tracking the lava flow to the east. A scheduled flyover by civil defense. Or the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory. Or maybe the National Guard. Their home is only a few miles from the ocean, but the night breezes don't smell like the ocean anymore. The wind carries only a heavy, rank odor of sulfur and burned things, homes, and forests. Electricity is out, so the overhead fan is motionless. No light to read by, so all June can do at night is lie awake and hope. She hopes the lava stops, hopes they can agree before the next eruption about where to go and what to do before they run out of food, water, and fuel. When she'd first arrived on the Big Island, two decades earlier, the idea of living in this wild land had thrilled her. Growing up restless in Bridgeport, Connecticut, the only child of a middle school teacher and a tax accountant, she'd always yearned for a more vital life, close to the land where she could grow her own food. At the end of her freshman year at a nondescript state college, intrigued by the idea of studying tropical agriculture, she signed up for an exchange program at the University of Hawaii. Not at the big Manoa campus on Oahu, but in Hilo, a much smaller school on a much bigger island at the edge of the rainforests and vast ranch lands. In her first week at UH Hilo, June Chambly met Lonnie Shipman, a many-generations local boy, a college dropout with an easy laugh and strong, capable arms who stacked pallets of hay and cattle feed at the farm store. Lonnie taught her to grow papayas and harvest bananas. They picked opee, growing like mussels on the rocks at Kapoho, and rode the surf at Hanoli'i. She didn't need to finish college, he said. He could teach her everything she needed to know about tropical farming and homesteading. Puna District, he said. That's where they'd live. Land is cheap and rainfall is plentiful. All they needed was two acres to start with. They'd live off the land and create their personal paradise. Grow everything organic, waste nothing, and turn every square foot of land into perpetual bounty. June's parents visited once, just after she had dropped out of college. They were disappointed and asked too many questions. What about finishing your degree? What about a career or at least a job with benefits? And why would you live on an active volcano? Lonnie had laughed off their concerns, so June had tried to explain. The climate is gentle. You can grow, catch, or create everything you need if you are willing to respect the land. The Aina. The volcano? That's been erupting gradually since 1983. Not right here, but 20 miles away in Volcanoes National Park, where everyone can visit safely, hiking ancient craters to marvel at sulfur banks and liquid lava oozing toward the sea. June's parents didn't want to see sulfur banks or lava fields. They went home to Connecticut, unhappy but reluctant to interfere. Over the years, they'd faithfully sent cards, Facebook posts, and phone calls, but they never returned and June never quite found the time to visit them, 7,000 miles away on the mainland. Lonnie's boundless confidence and love for the land drew her into an exciting new life, 
They swam in waterfalls, camped under the cliffs of Waipio Valley, and watched meteor showers flash through the darkest skies she'd ever seen. On a breezy, warm day, Lonnie and Dune followed a pig trail over a 1950s lava flow into the Puna rainforest and found their homestead. Wild pink orchids and night-blooming jasmine grew along a rough, red earth track fringed by tree ferns and coconut palms. Lehua flowers bloomed, red and frilly, on the soft-leaved ohia trees. An eo, a Hawaiian hawk, flew overhead, and Lonnie declared it a good omen. So they bought two acres, carved out a clearing, and built a small metal-roofed cabin with a catchment tank to collect rainwater. A decommissioned shipping container became the storage shed for tools and fertilizer. Their dining room was a blue tarp stretched between palm trees, sheltering a picnic table. They asked a Buddhist friend to marry them and celebrated with a potluck luau. June's parents sent their best wishes and a check to cover the cost of the roof. You're part of the greater Ohana now, Lonnie told her. A new, expanded family that blends knowledge from many cultures. Family is fluid here on the island. We are all Ohana. But what about your family? She'd asked him once, early on. He said he and his parents didn't share the same views about purpose and livelihood. When he'd insisted on using the Hawaiian name Lani instead of his given name Lawrence, when he'd refused to attend private school on Oahu, and rejected the idea of working for the family's land development corporation, they'd told him to make his own way in the world, which, Lani said, he was happy to do. He hadn't spoken to his father since high school. There'd been a phone call from his mother a year ago, June knew, informing him that his father had survived a minor heart attack. What Lonnie had done with that information, he wouldn't say. The work was more arduous than June expected. Everything about homesteading was hard, and it all took time. Clearing the rough, uneven land, convincing crops to grow, defending everything from insects and diseases and pigs, getting produce to the local markets before it spoiled. Under a thin skin of red-black dirt, the land in Puna district was mostly crumbled crusts and hard ledges of old lava. It was high in iron, and it drained well, but it wasn't soil. To create soil, they had to find cheap sources of compost. He had a friend who knew a rancher who kept horses sometimes at Panaeva a public stable next to the county rodeo arena. Every Monday for nearly two decades, Lonnie and June drove their pickup to Panaeva and scooped horseshit direct from the source. That, plus manure from their chickens and every compostable item from daily living, turned the brittle lava into rich, tillable soil. Slowly by slowly, the clearing became a farm. Gradually, the land transformed June, and she became like Lani, a Kama Aina, someone long time on the land. They both grew lean, strong, and brown. Lani set up tanks to raise catfish, and June learned beekeeping. They sold and bartered eggs, coffee, honey, and produce at the farm markets. 
June created their Facebook page, and Lonnie blogged about sustainable farming. They named their little farm Lonnie June, the obvious and perfect name. In Hawaiian, Lonnie means heaven. The land structured their first day together, and then the next and the next. The days became seasons. The seasons became years. In 18 years, they were able to create everything except children. In the beginning, they told each other there was no rush. The keiki can come by and by. But by and by never came. And June's thoughts of children came only occasionally now. Late at night when the shrill songs of the koki frogs or Lonnie's snoring kept her awake. She chose names. Leilani, Keahi, Napua. But she never told Lonnie. There were no babies, and now there is no farm. The catfish and honeybees died, and all their crops, bananas, papayas, rambutan, lulikoi, citrus, sweet corn, coffee, tomatoes, beans, strawberries, edamame, hot peppers, shriveled in the fumes. The few remaining hens produce no eggs. When today's sun rises in a few hours, the light will filter through a gray, foul-tasting air. The island belongs to Pele, the powerful and vindictive goddess of volcanoes. Pele gives, and Pele takes away. Still dressed in the t-shirt and shorts she slept in, June considers what she might pull out for breakfast. Usually this would be whatever they harvested or acquired by barter, but there's not much food left now except rice and spam. Two weeks ago, after months of seismic warnings, Kilauea volcano blew up. A mushroom cloud of molten rock, ash, and toxic gases erupted from the lava lake in Hale Ma'u Ma'u, the hundred-thousand-year-old crater at the summit. On the same day, long cracks appeared in the roads of Le'ilani Estates, a residential neighborhood twenty miles downslope from the summit, just three miles from Lani and June's farm. Evacuate now, came the order from the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency. Follow the coastal roads, but the first to go must be the people at greatest risk. Others should wait and stay off the roads. Shelter in place. We're fine, Lonnie told June. We can stay. The next day, as Lonnie and June worked feverishly to harvest vegetables withering in the foul air, the volcano shook the island with another massive earthquake. Huge fissures split the ground, spewing explosive steam and massive rivers of lava. Their escape route, Highway 130, was blocked. The magma beneath the island found the East Rift Zone, a vulnerable seam that runs for four miles beneath farms and neighborhoods. Lava flowed from several vents, burning and burying homes and ranches, seaside vacation homes, and black sand beaches. On the fourth day, June and Lonnie walked to where the lava was flowing, a mile from their home. 
They pulled on their newly issued goggles and breathing masks and walked past homes with well-tended front yards and children's playsets. A county firefighter stopped them at a ragged line of orange plastic cones and showed them where to stand. Only here, no more close. Keep your masks on. To watch the lava as it sprayed and fountained from a 500-foot-long fissure. The river of molten rock swallowed an empty dog kennel and mounded briefly against the back wall of a two-car garage. The garage and the attached house, newly repainted, pale gray with lavender trim, burst into flames. Within minutes, they were gone, torched by fire and smothered in a 20-foot pile of molten rock. June stumbled to the side of the road, pulled off her mask, and vomited onto a freshly mowed lawn. Pele must be jealous, the firefighter shrugged under his gear. She want that house, she'd take it. He said he'd been there for 16 hours, moving the barriers to higher and higher ground as the lava spread. He'd lost two pairs of boots so far. The soles melted off. Lonnie tried to put an arm around June's shoulders, but she shrugged him off. That's Melanie Kitasura's house, she yelled. She has three kids. Where can she go? That man, how can he be so callous? The lava comes and no one can stop it, Lonnie said. Their job is to warn us, get us out, make sure no one dies. I just want to get away. Civil Defense distributed a new topographical map with squiggly blue lines that show the path of steepest descent, where lava is likely to flow when Kilauea erupts. She and Lonnie live on top of one of those blue lines. Did that map exist 18 years ago? Would she have paid attention then? Before the eruption, 3,500 people lived above the East Rift Zone on those squiggly blue lines. Nearly all had fled, scrambling to save whatever they can carry out. Farmers hauled equipment and rounded up whatever livestock they could find. Some evacuees moved in with relatives. Others found high-priced rentals elsewhere. Most live nearby in the overwhelmed Red Cross shelters or in the tent city that has bloomed in nearby Pahoa. If Lonnie and June had left with the others, they'd be safe now. They could rent a place in Hilo or Kona, maybe find jobs. But Lonnie refused to leave during the early evacuations. And now it's too late. Lava covers all the roads to the northeast. The Northwest Road, Highway 130, was barricaded by army engineers after deep cracks split the asphalt and began spewing steam and sulfurous gases. The few remaining holdouts like Lonnie and June cannot leave now unless they go on foot along the unmapped pig paths that wind deep into Puna Forest Reserve, where the ground shakes and steam hisses out from new fissures. Lonnie won't admit they should have left when they had the chance. We're okay right here, he says. The National Guard is fixing 130. They'll put those steel plates down like bridge pieces when the earthquakes settle down. June can only shake her head in defeat. And someone needs to keep an eye on people's places, he adds. Chase off the pigs and maybe looters. We'll stay and keep things safe. No one can keep things safe from the volcano. 
The ash and sulfur fumes smother everything that's not burned or buried by lava. Then there's the curious stuff called Pele's hair. Fine, wispy tangles of pale, amber-colored fibers shot from pressurized pinholes in the Earth's crust. A strange form of lava, like asbestos or fiberglass, both beautiful and lethal. Airborne threads of Pele's hair drift over the blistered landscape, traveling on trade winds and steam fumes. They curl and cling, settling softly, coating everything with sharp, abrasive, delicately toxic dust bunnies. Outdoors, Lonnie and June wear N95 air masks, wrap-around goggles, long-sleeved shirts, jeans, socks, and work boots. Inside, they've taped over the windows and doors with plastic and tarps. When it gets bad, they wear masks indoors, too. Several times a day, June sweeps up the deadly fluffs of Pele's hair that have found their way into the house. Each evening, she sits on the lanai, pulls on work gloves, and uses a stiff bristled brush to scrub the sharp, glassy threads from the soles of their work boots. Sometimes Pele's hair reminds her of Lonnie's hair, if the fine, pale lava threads could be twisted into dreadlocks. It's the minor disruptions that gnaw at a person, not just the cataclysmic destruction. Mail delivery has halted. County water lines are broken. Power lines have been toppled or melted by lava. Most cell towers have been toppled. Like most people in Puna District, they know how to live off the grid. Their generator runs on gasoline. The stove and refrigerator are connected to a propane tank. Both kinds of fuel, of course, will explode if the lava arrives on their doorstep. Each morning, June figures out a meal. This morning's breakfast is simple. Their last avocado, reheated rice, a slab of spam. She adds an oatmeal bar and two small tomatoes that finally ripened on the kitchen counter. No coffee, so June fills two mugs with water from a jug in the fridge. The morning news tells them that Highway 130 remains closed. More equipment and workers to fix the road will arrive this morning in Pahoa, coming in on a barge from Honolulu. Pahoa, the only real town in Lower Puna, is seven miles northwest of their farm. It has gas stations, schools, churches, a laundromat, a 7-Eleven, a bank, a police station, a community center, a post office, restaurants, and since the beginning of the eruption, a Red Cross shelter, civil defense command post, and a sprawling tent city of refugees. If they can get to Pahoa, they can buy food, do their laundry, pick up mail, get gas. They could also escape the volcano. Maybe, the news announcer says hopefully, Highway 130 will open tomorrow. Or the next day, maybe. And that's the way it has been. They are told, go, leave now. Then, no, stay, it's not safe to travel. Evacuate. No, don't evacuate. Too dangerous. Shelter in place. Grab everything and go down that road. No, not that one. Go this way instead. 
spend three hours crawling through toxic fumes and scalding steam, on ground that can melt the tires on your car and the shoes on your feet before they tell you to turn around and go back. June slices the avocado and urges flight. As soon as 1.30 opens, we've got to get out. Permanently. We've got to find some place to live and work. Lonnie, as always, refuses. But we have a place to live. We can't abandon our farm. There will be looters and squatters. The pigs will destroy whatever's left. Shit, Lonnie. The farm? The farm is all pow. Dead. Gone. Whatever survives, no one can eat it. Who will pay for gray spinach and rotten tomatoes? The ash contaminates the soil, and the sulfur kills everything. It's gone. We have to rebuild. Start again soon as we can. He places his rice bowl in the sink. We'll recover. We always recover. Hurricane Madeline, two years ago? All that flooding? We've recovered. For Christ's sake, Lonnie. That was three days of rain and wind. How can you compare that to this? We have no idea how long before the soil is good again, or how to fix it. All our savings will be gone in a month. We still have truck payments. How do we pay medical bills? No bank will lend us money. How far into debt do we have to fall? Lonnie looks wounded. We'll be okay, I promise. June throws up her hands. You can't promise anything you can't control. Then pleading. I loved our farm too, but it's gone now. It's dead. We can't do this alone. What about your parents? You know that's not going to happen. Then you stay. I'll get a job somewhere. Maybe over in Kona. I can clean houses, do landscaping at a hotel. Then we can keep us going. He's not listening. We need to get the land back in shape. Buy seeds and plants. Be ready when the lava stops. Fimo will help. He's digging in, so her voice sharpens again. And when will the lava stop? Months? Years? Maybe never. The soil is poisoned. She pauses. You're not feeling it, are you? My desperation? Desperation? No. No, we're gonna get through. This is our home, our life. He lifts a hand toward her shoulder. She pulls away. That's your plan? Tough it out and sleep with your gas mask on? That's not a plan. She pushes her chair back and folds her arms, closing herself off or holding herself together, she's not sure which. Silence and stalemate. Lonnie shrugs and picks up his shotgun. Time for patrol. Lonnie has appointed himself the watchman of their abandoned community. Each day, he walks whatever farm tracks and forest roads are still safe, carrying a water bottle, a cell phone, and a gas mask, and the gun in case something needs to be driven off or killed. He visits the few remaining neighbors, looks for evidence of trespassers, and kicks away embers that might start brush fires. He texts photos of stray dogs and cats to help locate their owners. While he's gone, June scatters corn for the surviving hens and fills their water bowl. Only five remain, and there are no eggs to collect. She keeps them locked inside so they can't dig for bugs in the poisoned soil. As she locks the coop, 
She hears snuffling and grunting in the woods beyond a stand of bare-limbed ohia trees. The pigs are roaming again, searching for food. Something must be drawing the pigs to their neighbor Adam Tanaka's property. Perhaps he left a garbage can outside, and the pigs are scavenging for scraps. Adam is a small, frail man in his 80s, the once-tough cattleman who spent most of his life on a ranch in Kau, near South Point. He's been their friend for years, sharing his farming skills and showing June how to craft delicate feather lays to sell to tourists. When he broke a hip a year ago, they built him a wheelchair ramp so he could come home early to convalesce. Adam's house is closed, and he's been gone for at least a week. When June spoke with him after the first big quake, he talked of moving to his niece's place, up the Hamakua coast. Madam Pele wants her land back, Adam told June. And who are we to tell her no? She is Pele, the earth-eating goddess. June thinks she understands it now, this belief in a malevolent goddess who shapes the land and everyone's future. Whatever will be, will be. Lonnie checked on Adam's house a few days ago. No sign of a break-in, he told her. Windows were closed and the doors were locked. So Adam must be gone up the coast, because when local people are home, their windows and doors are always open. How else would the breezes and the geckos slip in? June can't remember when she last saw a gecko, and an open window just lets in sulfur fumes. Sometimes, though, when the trade winds swing around to the east, there's a bit of relief. The toxic fog drifts away inland, over to Kona, and the air clears. Occasionally, the roar of the volcano pauses, and June can remember how it used to be. It's that way this afternoon, a little fresher, a little quieter, when Lonnie calls her. She's in the kitchen, wiping ash film off the counters. Good news! The road's opening! He's almost singing. We can go to Pahoa tomorrow. June catches her breath and drops into a chair. Wonderful. We can get food and gas and do laundry. I can't believe I'm so happy about doing laundry. Suddenly, an afternoon rain shower is pounding on the cabin's metal roof, and the air feels fresh and wet. A few minutes later, the sky clears, and the late afternoon sun slants in. June spots a rainbow low in the eastern sky. This is the land of rainbows. Nearly every day brings a shower, and every shower has a rainbow. But since the eruption, Vogue has smothered the rainbows. June smiles as she pulls back the grubby squares of plastic tarp that cover their windows. She tunes the receiver to a local music station, then rummages through the kitchen, pulling out the food they've been hoarding. Tonight, they'll have the last of the rice and spam. There's a can of beer they can share, and a few stale crackers, and an unopened package of chevre from the Kao Goat Lady. When Lonnie comes in, soaked from the warm rain, she greets him with a smile and an open-mouthed kiss. She's clean and her hair smells of shampoo. When had they last made love? Their passion for each other has been slipping away for years, so she can't blame that entirely on the volcano. But maybe she can make it up to him tonight. Delighted, Lonnie pulls her in and kisses her back. A celebration, all this? 
just for a trip into town? It's like being let out of prison after so long. It's not so long, just two weeks. We've gone that long before, between trips to town. He seems surprised that so little can make her happy. But we've been trapped. It's different. Doesn't he understand? No matter. Tonight will be good, and tomorrow will be better. That night, they recognize each other's strong brown bodies, and they make love by the silver light of a half-grown moon and the red glow of the volcano. They fall asleep naked and unmasked, tangled in sheets and each other, while the wild pigs move unhindered through backyards and dead forests. Early the next morning, by the light of the volcano and a clear, pale dawn, Lonnie loads the pickup with fuel cans and water jugs. On the dashboard, he places masks and their civil defense-issued local resident placard so they can drive through the restricted areas. They should get an early start, he insists. Be there when everything opens. But first, June says, please check on Adam's house. I think there's garbage there, something that the pigs are getting into. Maybe you can tidy up and scare them off. Lonnie picks up the shotgun and heads through the trees to Adam Tanaka's house. Set in a grove of areca palms, it's a three-room, single-walled structure, built island-style on square posts and concrete piers, with a broad overhang above the front lanai. The pigs have been here. Garbage and a shredded plastic bag have been strewn across the yard, and something has been trying to get into the house, too. Fresh gashes from teeth or claws or tusks scar the edge of the doorframe and the base of the door. When he climbs the steps, he sees that the wooden door is broken off at the top hinge and twisted in the frame. There's a gap at the bottom, big enough for a large animal to crawl through. Lonnie holds the shotgun in his left hand, lifts the door with his right, and pushes hard, opening it far enough to step through. The putrid smell hits him. Not garbage. Something worse. Decay and blood mixed with excrement. He hears the steady drone of flies. He braces for what he dreads. The human body. What was once Adam Tanaka is splayed on the kitchen floor. An old handgun rests on the floor nearby. Something brown stains the floor, sticky-looking and busy with flies. The pigs have been here. Lonnie gags and reels backward. He forces himself out through the door, drops the shotgun on the lanai, and leans against a post, breathing in great gulps of sulfur-tainted air until the blood stops pounding in his ears. All he can think is, that's not Adam. That can't be Adam. Adam, who showed us where to pick limpets off the rocks and Kapoho. Adam, who tried to teach me ukulele, but I was too clumsy, so I never practiced. Adam, who should be living with his niece and Hamakua. But Lonnie had seen the denim shirt, the one Adam always wore, and Adam's wire-rimmed glasses, neatly folded on the kitchen counter. June spoke of feeling desperate, but this, he thinks, 
is what despair really looks like. He turns away. What does he need? A hammer, nails, plywood? It's the best he can do to seal up Adam's house and keep the pigs out. He'll report it when they get to Pahoa. It isn't an emergency, not now. He picks up his shotgun and heads home. June's busy stuffing clothes and towels and sheets into their old canvas laundry bag, so she doesn't see Lonnie walk behind the chicken coop. He finds tools and a half sheet of plywood, then jogs back to Adam's house. He nails the door shut and fastens plywood over it, thinking the whole time about Adam and June. You checked Adam's place, she asks. Lonnie turns the pickup onto the highway, and they join a line of other slow-moving vehicles heading into town. Damn it, Lonnie says. Can't they go faster? Where did all these cars come from? June is staring out the side window and has forgotten her question. Clouds of stinking steam and dense smoke float by them. She feels the concussion from explosions and hears the crackling of unseen fires. This isn't real, she thinks. It's the movie set for a hideous dystopia. A post-apocalypse film where the burnt, broken landscape tells you immediately that there will be no survivors, no saviors. And here we are, heading into town to do laundry. And Lonnie's worried about getting stuck in traffic. Lonnie leans forward and peers into the smoke. He guides the truck carefully around potholes and over the huge steel plates the DOT has placed above the hot steam vents. She remembers to ask, Is Adam's house okay? Yeah, it's secure, all locked up. There was some trash. So that's what the pigs were after. It's good you took care of it. They're out of the sulfur clouds and approaching the next checkpoint, where a state trooper notices the placard on their dashboard and directs them to a soccer field, now occupied by a sprawling refugee camp. They park next to the community center's pool. The pool is closed. Several goats are tied to the chain-link fence. June gets out of the pickup and stares, Hundreds of people are living here in cars and vans and tents and tarps. There are tables and chairs, dogs and babies on blankets, grills and refrigerators and people everywhere. Most wait in lines for news, mail, water and food, waiting to be contacted, processed, interviewed, reunited. Children cry, dogs bark, goats bleat. People argue and scream and weep. The smell of smoke and brimstone permeates everything. June sees a woman sitting on the tailgate of a pickup, grilling breakfast on a hibachi. One hand wields a metal fork, prodding sausages, and the other holds a cell phone. June hears her say, Yes, the graduation was lovely. We are so proud. 4.0, full scholarship to UCLA. He thinks maybe history or political science. Oh, yes. It's high school graduation time. How perfectly normal. Lonnie bumps her shoulder and reminds her to line up for the laundromat. 
I'll get gas and chicken feed. You can start the laundry, then go to the post office. He pushes the bulging laundry bag into her arms and gives her a gentle shove. June moves a few steps forward and watches as their pickup disappears around a curve. She drops the laundry bag on the muddy grass and sits on it, then pulls out her phone and stares at the time display. In Connecticut, it's two in the afternoon. As Lonnie pulls up to a gas pump a mile up the road, June is talking to her mother, 7,000 miles to the east. As he pumps gas, Lonnie thinks now that June is right. They need to leave. He's not sure where they can go, but they will talk about it. Maybe north to Kohala. They can lease some land and start farming again, a hundred miles away from the volcano. He smiles and thinks of their lovemaking. He pays for gas, then pulls out his phone and calls her. The call goes to voicemail. He doesn't know what to say, so he doesn't leave a message. He hesitates, then calls his father. As Lonnie drives to the feed store, June flags down a car heading toward Hilo, 30 miles northeast, where there's an airport. In the car, she calls Lonnie. The call goes to voicemail. She isn't sure what to say, so she doesn't leave a message. By nine in the morning, Lonnie has found the abandoned laundry bag in the soccer field. By nine in the morning, June is in the airport lounge in Hilo, booking a flight to Honolulu. She knows where she's going. Honolulu to San Francisco. San Francisco to Chicago. Chicago to New York. Her father will pick her up at JFK and drive her home to Bridgeport. She might make it in time for dinner tomorrow evening. In Honolulu, she'll try calling Lonnie again. She'll also have time to buy clothes, a toothbrush, and new shoes that have never stepped in horseshit, or Pele's hair. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information, or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. The story featured in this episode is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents are the products of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to actual events, locales, or persons, living or dead, is entirely coincidental.